Oh, good times, good times. All right, let's go ahead and get started with some prayer. Let's dial it up. Jesus, I thank you for this day. Thank you again for your word that gives us direction, gives us insight for a living, but chiefly, your word shows us how we might worship you, how we might live in the power of the grace that you've given. And so I pray that we will love what your word says to us, that we will embrace what it says to us because it is given back to you as an expression of worship. And so... This day is yours. I pray that you come and you dwell with us in a very special way. I pray that you open up our hearts and minds to what it is you want each of us as individuals to do when it comes to your word, when it comes to your design, when it comes to marriage. And so we look to you, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you, Jesus, in your awesome name. Amen. All right, well, uh, from that very insightful video, um, vows... They change everything. Vows change everything. When we enter into a covenant, when we enter into an agreement, when we enter into a pact, when we say, I want to marry this person, fundamentally, everything about that relationship, everything in our lives is transformed. And we have to face a new reality with new challenges and a new way of perceiving not only my life, but their life and life in general. And I think when I focus on this idea of vows, what it, what it really means is I'm left with this one great decision. I have to fundamentally decide, am I going to actually keep the promise that I have made regardless of my feelings? Or am I going to eventually break the promise I have made because of my feelings? See, that's really where it boils down to. That's why I think vows change everything. I think it's why marriage confronts us at a whole different level. And it's a completely different challenge than when we were dating or just hanging out with friends or living our single life. It's like when we decide that we want to make this person the one... It's like we're deciding, all right, Jesus, I want you to sift my life at a whole new level. I want you to see what I'm really made of. I want you to work on me at the deepest level possible. And I believe this is true because when we enter into marriage, there's this one little simple three-letter word that clearly is in the equation. One three little word that begins with S. S I N. If you thought I was going to say sex, <laughs> we know where your minds are, ladies. All right, so, um, right? But, but really, at the real foundational level, when we make a vow, what we do confront is sin. We confront sin because, again, when we vow, when we promise, when we marry, we do this really big, bold step that says, I will promise, I will vow, I will pledge my life to you. I will put you first. Do you realize that's what we did when we said, I do? We said, I, I, I put you first. And as soon as we, as sinful creatures, say, I'm going to put somebody first, that confronts our sin. 
it confronts our sin in a pretty bold way. Now, this wasn't the way it was meant to be. We learned about this a little bit back in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. We looked at it last week, right? We looked at how Adam and Eve were originally designed, and they were not designed this way. When you go back and you look at Genesis, we see that Adam was designed to keep the garden, to guard the garden, to tend the garden. He was a servant. And then God said, it's not good that man be alone. I will make him a helper. And so she too was a servant. The man and the woman, the husband and the wife, they were servants. And in a sinless state, their mission, their goal, their delight, their purpose, the thing that rose them out of bed with a smile on their face and the birds were chirping, the thing that drove them was how can I today serve the other, come under the other and lift them up? See, that's the way marriage was. And that was the first inclination. It wasn't work, it wasn't effort, it wasn't like I better just straighten my bootstraps, even though they didn't have clothes. But, you know, it wasn't like, that. it was like, man, I can't wait to serve her today. I can't wait to serve him today. That was designed. And that was good. That was very good. That was bliss. But then there was rebellion. And in the rebellion, they covered themselves up. And rebellion, they hid from God. And in their rebellion, God said, well, what's going to happen now is you're going to try to master one another. To dominate one another. A wife is going to desire to control her husband. A wife is going to desire to have her way. A wife is going to have the propensity to be difficult, to be a nag, to be demanding, to be bossy. And a husband is now going to have the propensity to be oppressive and domineering and shallow and heartless. And that became the cyclical challenge with sin. And so... Today, we still face the same challenges. When we say, I do, we're not only saying, I do to you, but we're also saying, I do pledge to face my own proclivities towards selfishness. Toward my wants over your wants. I'm taking on that challenge. And and, and I think this is important that we see it in a sin context. I mean, I really do, because again, I think so often, and we talked about this last week, the the thing we sometimes want to do with marriage is say, I just need more pointers, I need more tips, I just need to be a better listener, I need to be a better learner, and, and, and if I just have a few extra things in my utility belt, I'll be able to really see a great marriage. But again, those are band aids to the deeper issue. Unless I address my sin, I'm always going to have something coming out on the surface that I, that I have to, to deal with. And so if we're really going to see marriage be by design as God intended, we have to address the sin. And the way we address the sin is gospel. I bring it back to gospel. I bring it back to grace because I believe that's the only thing that can fix it. Other than that, every other thing is just domesticating our sin. It's just domesticating it. I'm trying to figure out how to domesticate my selfishness, domesticate my self-interest, domesticate my own sense of well-being, and and I want to cloak it, but really all it is is sin. But the gospel steps in, and by God's grace, for God's glory, and my good, changes me. It's where Jesus steps in and says, because I took your sin, you can be free. See, that's why the gospel matters to marriage. 
Because if you look at the original problem, when humanity first sinned, when the nature of sin hit us, it erupted first and foremost in marriage. Right? I mean, that's the first casualty of sin. It's their marriage. It's the one relationship that is going to put the greatest strain on us as individuals because of this. And so all the more we need the gospel of grace, we need the gospel of Jesus to step in. And it matters fundamentally for two reasons. The first is the gospel frees us from sin, right? It releases us from sin's control. In fact, in Romans 6, 6, it says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. You're not a slave to sin anymore. I'm not a slave to sin. If my life is in Christ, because Christ took my sin and gave me His righteousness, the great exchange, and therefore I'm not enslaved. Now, it doesn't mean I still don't have temptation. I don't still have struggle. Throughout life, till I die, I'm going to have those temptations and struggles, and there's going to be this war, flesh against spirit. But it's going to, to really hammer away at the deepest root problem. I, I was controlled by sin. Now I am controlled by God's Spirit. And that's the other part, right? So the gospel matters not only because it releases us from the control of sin, but it unleashes the Spirit to shape our character. That's a part of God's grace. Shaped by the Spirit. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, it's it's really cool. In fact, I want you to open up to Ephesians right now. Open up to Ephesians chapter 5. Now, uh, in about a year, uh, starting in January 2013, we're actually going to do a study in the book of Ephesians. It's going to be really cool. Looking forward to that. Today, just a very rapid overview of Ephesians. But I want you to understand this as it builds to where we're going this morning. And it's this idea of life in the Spirit and why that matters and, 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 and what we're really trying to get at even as it deals with marriage. So Ephesians chapter 1, you're in chapter 5, but in Ephesians chapter 1, it starts off by saying that we have been granted in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. It's like God said before the foundations of the world, I choose you to be blessed by my grace. And as evidence of that, I give you the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. So in chapter 1, we receive the Spirit as a guarantee. Then you get to chapter 2, it says we were sinful, we were stupid, we were broken, we were rebellious, and God in His grace stepped in. And by grace we are saved through faith, not of our works. Works, Because if it were, we would boast. Look how good I am. Look how cool and studly I am. It, he says, no. Not by your works. Only by my grace. And in that, he makes us a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. So the Spirit is a guarantee deposit. Chapter 1. The Spirit makes us a dwelling place of God. Chapter 2. Then he gets to chapter 3 and he talks about being strengthened in our inner person by the Holy Spirit so that we would know the breadth and depth and height and power of God's love. So the Holy Spirit communicates love to us. Chapter 3. Chapter 4, the Holy Spirit establishes unity within the church. So you see all these things, right, about the Holy Spirit, all the things that he does. And then Paul gets to chapter 5, verse 1, and he says, Therefore... What is the therefore, therefore? Well, he's saying everything I just said to you from chapters 1 to 4, because of this, therefore, 
He says, be imitators. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. What he's saying in chapters 1 through 4 is here is the power of the gospel. Here is what is given in the Holy Spirit. Therefore, live out that power. And chapter 5 and chapter 6 are designed to articulate the way we live then in the power of of the gospel. And so he says, live as an imitator of God. He says, don't give in to the old nature and the old ways. And he lists out the ways that people live sinfully. And he says, that's not really the essence of the gospel. That's not how you live. He says in verse 7, he says, therefore, do not become partners with them, those who live contrary to the gospel. He says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord and take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So, again, you start to see your mission statement. Because I have the Spirit, because I have grace, because I have the gospel, I imitate God, and I start to really live out light. I'm not going to live like darkness. I'm going to make the most of the time because it is short. In fact, he goes into verse 15. He says, look carefully at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. So again, urgency, right? This is how you live, because the days are evil. He says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Yes, I want to know that. He says, don't get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit's got to drive it. Giving thanks always in verse 20. And for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now you stop at verse 21, you think he's completed his thought, but he's not. He's kind of laid out this whole thing, right? You have life in the Spirit, life in the Gospel, therefore live as children of the light. We go, great, how do we do that? How do we redeem the time? How do we walk wisely? He starts off by saying, submit to one another. It's the essence of the Christian life. But from the platform of submit to one another, where's the very first place he goes? After that, for example, wives, you do this. Husbands, you do this. Kids, you do this. Parents, you do this. He goes right to the very foundation of culture. So the very first place Paul can go applicationally after all of this rich theology is marriage. Is wives and husbands. And so when I say we have to take ownership of the reality of sin and we have to really embrace the power of the gospel and from that we really need to live in the context of grace and have life in the Holy Spirit to have great marriages. I'm not just saying it. That is the buildup of Paul throughout the book of Ephesians. Considered to be one of the great jewels of the New Testament when it comes to what we believe as Christians. So, when we talk about husbands and wives in marriage, it's more than just practical. I keep building the case that it is theological, that it is worshipful, that it is missional, and all of that is true here. See, that's why this series is called Essentials. We're dealing with the essential things that matter. And for us, if we follow Christ, this is essential. The gospel matters fundamentally when it comes to to how we are as husbands and wives and Christians. 
Now, when Paul gets to verse 21 there in chapter 5, he promotes something I think it's really important to recall. That is mutual submission. I mean, that's what he says, right? Submit to one another in reverence for Christ. I mean, that's what it is. And so we look at Jesus and we go, just as Jesus did, so I do. Right? And you look at how Jesus submitted. He submitted willfully. He submitted lovingly. He submitted with great purpose and great passion and great intention. It wasn't about His will. It was about His Father's will. It wasn't about His joy or His ease. He took pain so we could have life. That is His submission. And so that is how we, in turn, submit as all Christians. But as Paul says this, he's not just talking about submission in some ubiquitous way. He's not like saying, hey, all men, women, it's all just submission, whatever you want to make of it. No, he says we mutually submit. But then underlying this idea of mutual submission, he is saying, but there's design, there's difference. So verse 21, he says, everybody submits. But then he gets into verse 22, and then eventually verse 25, he says, now, wives, this is how you do this. Husbands, this is how you do this. And he gets later, children, this is how you do this. He says there's different ways we express this bigger picture of submission. And that's biblical design, right? And in this sense, what we mean by this is while we mutually submit, we submit in different ways, and that communicates that there is this essential equality among men and women. And when I say essential, I mean the essence of our equality. The essence of our equality is equal. But then there's this sense of subordination in design to this bigger picture that God has, which means men and women don't duplicate everything in every way about every issue all the time. But men do certain things. Women do certain things. Husbands do certain things. Wives do certain things. Because, again, it brings God great joy and it reflects design, not in competition, but in complement. And so uh, when we go through this, we have to put all of that together. That's a part of the essential quality that we want to understand. And so we we take ownership of of all of this. We, We want to embrace all of this to submit, which literally the word submit just means to put in an order or like rank, like building a military group. That's all it means. And it's for this grand purpose. And I remind us that the grand purpose is ultimately God's glory. So husbands, they submit to Christ by loving their wives just as Christ loved the church. By leading, by loving, by learning. And in like fashion, wives are going to submit to Christ in a different way. Again, all designed to give God glory. That takes us today finally to essential Wives. Essential wives, right? That's the topic. And in this, what we mean is Jesus calls wives to love just like Jesus loved. That's the heart. And as I was thinking about this today, you know, it's really weird. Again, like I said, a guy coming up to talk about how wives can be biblically for their husbands. That sounds really self-interested. Um, that's, that's not my heart at all. 
You know, I, I really want God's word to, to be lifted up and held in the highest esteem and the highest value. And I know in this that definitely even communicating to husbands about what it means to be a husband is very different than communicating to wives. Not just because I'm a dude and you are not, but because more than that even, the life realities of women are so different than men. I mean, honestly, I was thinking about this week. You women have it rough because no matter what, you can't win uh, most of the time. Here's what I mean by this. Um, If you are attractive, you can't win. If you're frumpy, you can't win. It's like you judge each other. It's a rough thing, right? You just can't win. You keep your house really clean, you get judged for being really clean. You keep it really messy, you get judged for being really messy. You can't win. Like, dudes never do this. Ever. You moms, if you choose to homeschool, you get criticized. If you choose to public school, you get criticized. If you choose to private school, you get criticized. There's like this weird judgment that goes on from women to women. So I I, I couldn't even cope. I mean, dudes are like, uh, where your kids go to school? We homeschool. Oh, cool, whatever. I mean, we don't care. We don't care at all. We're not judging. Dude, your shop's messy. Eh, eh. That's it. Dude, really clean shot. Yeah, cool. All right. I, it's all the same. It's all the same. But you women, that's a lot of pressure. And so I, I, I approach this knowing that there's pressure to perform among women. And that's a part of that sinful competitiveness that exists in human beings. And so, and that's says, man, I, I feel for you. And I, I think even as what I'm going to share about marriage, I can't cover everything. I can't cover everything about wives because I don't know every circumstance. And so that's where grace just has to step in and fill in the blanks that I don't understand. The other thing uh, about women, in particular wives, is I think it's no different than husbands. I don't think wives are as revered in our culture as they should be or could be. Again, I went to Google this week, dangerous place, and, and I typed in wives. I just typed in wives. I want to know what are the first five things that comes up uh, under the heading of wives. The first was just the definition in Webster's. The second was a definition by way of Wikipedia. The third thing was a Time Magazine article called Sex Starved Wives. We husbands didn't know. If you would have told us, (laughs) we would have eased the burden, all right? But... That was the third thing. The fourth thing. The ten most cruel wives. I didn't even click. I didn't want to know. And then number five was cheating wives. So, those are your top five hits on Google. What's the lesson? Go to Bing, right? That's our lesson still. So, right? So... Again, it's no different than husbands, just not always well-revered, well-treated, well-understood, whatever. So we want to do that. And so that's sort of our mission this morning at this very broad level. And so uh, last week, there were three things that husbands were to focus on. This week, for wives, only two. All right? I had somebody go, like, you're going to have ten things, aren't you? I'm a dude. I don't multitask. You get two. All right? So... 
All right, we're going to go to, but, but before we get to wives, we start just with women. And so again, we're talking about being gospel driven. The success of this is gospel driven. So a gospel driven wife starts as a gospel driven woman. That puts us back in the book of Titus chapter two, Paul writes to Titus and he says, here's what the older women to do and to be like, he says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous, not slaves to much wine. It says they are to teach what is good and they are to train the younger women to be self-controlled, pure, and kind that the word of God may not be reviled. Again, it all starts in that soil. Right? To truly be a gospel-driven woman, it starts, uh, or a wife, it starts in the soil of being a gospel-driven woman. Of saying, these are valuable. These really matter. These are what I fight for. This is what shapes my future. This is what's going to tailor me to the kind of wife I'm going to be. In other words, if a woman says, you know what? I just want to get to the, the traits on being a wife. And you overlook the traits of being a godly woman. I guarantee you, those things will be imposing on your marriage. They will. So it it begins when you're a little girl and it grows as you enter adolescence. And so that's why I'm always saying to the younger women, cultivate these things, love these things. That's why I say to young men, don't be stupid, be godly, be smart, be pure, be self-controlled, be righteous, because it will affect your marriage someday. It will. We pick up a lot of bad habits when we're young, when we sin. And they carry into marriage. So often, what you deal with, like when we deal with marital counseling, Ellen and I, is they go, here's our problem right now. And you dig that down, and it usually stems from somebody else they dated in the past, who hurt them, abused them, previous spouse, dad, mom, family, whatever. It goes deep. And so that's why the encouragement is be a godly young man to be a godly husband. Be a godly young woman so you can be a godly wife. It starts with being a gospel-driven woman. From there, where does it go? Well, I said there's two. And the first is a gospel-driven wife loves. A gospel-driven wife truly loves. In fact, in Titus chapter 2, Titus is to teach the older women to then teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children. Now, a lot of times when I say this, women go, I got this one, right? I mean, really, like women are like, I'm the one that loves. He's lust. I'm love, you know, like, like, like that's the mindset. Like I've got this one taken care of. It's in my back pocket. I just pull it out. Women love. Men, not so much. But women, you know, like, and, you know, and, and some ways I go, you know, I, I think there's truth to that. But, but what I'm going to also say is what Paul does in his epistles is does a big favor. He commands us to things that are actually the things we least lean toward. Right? In other words, there's going to be this thing in us that goes this direction. So Paul brings command to jam it the other way. And so you might go, no, 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 women just love. And Paul goes, yeah, but they love in a certain context. And it may not be exactly the context of of where he's trying to push it. Because here's what I've realized, and I've contemplated this a lot. Um, 
I'm going to, I'm going to step out on a limb here and some are going to disagree, but I'll try to build my case. Um, I don't believe that love comes naturally or easily to couples. I don't believe love comes naturally or easily to couples. Now, let me break this down a little bit. Um, the first layer of things would be lust. That comes easily to couples, right? It's just, it's just, it's almost like an instinctual thing. You don't have to make lust happen. It's just chemicals, man. Bam, it just happens. Nobody has the switch that's the off lust switch, right? That they just, oh, off, lust is gone. It's just there, right? So lust doesn't take work. The next layer from lust would be like. I like you, right? And, and, and like's sort of interesting because, again, it's certainly deeper than lust. There is some intentional nature behind it, but still at the same time, it's conditional, right? I like you because you're fun right now. I like you because you're pleasant. I like you because you fill my needs. I like you because you're cool to hang out with. But as soon as they're a drag, I don't like you anymore. You ever notice when people say that? I love you, but I don't like you much right now. What they mean is, and I don't really love you either, but, you know, sounds really good. It's like, hey, can't we just be friends still? But it's the same idea. So, um, but, but like is something where, again, it's, it's pleasant for you. And that's like. Love, on the other hand, by way of biblical definition, is something that is cultivated, something that is built, something that is fought for, something that is not conditional. It's not conditional. In other words, it's not because you're pleasant, nice, fun, you fill me up, you're easygoing, simple to deal with. No, it's unconditional. In fact, by definition, according to the Bible, what love really is, is something rooted outside of the individual being loved. Biblical love is rooted outside of the individual that you are placing the love on. That's what makes it different. Right? So let me, let me give it by way of a, a familiar analogy. Um, uh, to be in love versus to love. Right? I mean, in part, this is why Paul even says, train the younger women to love. What he's saying is, get them to their senses, because this is going to be tough. If you have to be taught to love, love must be more than a feeling, right? Love must be more than I feel Twitterpated, which is a lame word for do to use. But, you know, it's got to be more than that. And, and it is, because it has to be taught and trained. And so the difference is the falling in love or being in love versus to love. See, to be in love is easy. To fall in love is super easy. Why? Because gravity does the work. Right? You just fall in love. I just felt it. Well, what did you do to cultivate it? Nothing. He's just that cute, right? So that's it. You just fall in love. Pretty easy. Doesn't have to have any commitment behind it necessarily. Doesn't have to have any work behind it necessarily. I'm just in love. It's romantic and it is conditionally motivated. It's totally rooted in how I feel. Now here's the thing. When you start dating, you fall in love. Again, I feel all these googlies inside. Another dude wore googlies, right? So, I feel googlies. I'm in love. 
then you go to the altar. And when you stand there before your pastor, here's what he does not say. He doesn't say, do you promise to be in love? He says, do you promise to love? We intentionally pull in out. Because when you make that vow, you're vowing something very, very different. It's not simply romantic, but it's resolved. And we're no longer saying it's going to be conditional. We're saying it's going to be unconditional. Right? That's the difference in love versus to love. And so this is why I, I, I put so much pressure on saying vows change everything. Because before you promised to love, you were just in love, you could go out of love, you could go do your own thing, you hadn't made any covenant, any oath, any pledge. You know, it would be sad if you broke up, but you know what, you could still do your own thing and be your own person, it could be all about you. But once you said, I'm submitting myself to you to love, the rules all changed. And with that, we come face to face with who we really are. What our real limits of selflessness can be. And so Paul says, wives, love your husbands. Love your husbands. Be prepared to love him in a way that isn't conditioned on how he acts, how thankful or non-thankful he is, how good or poor of a provider he is, whether he stays that fit, trim, hunky guy, or he is wider than he is tall eventually, right? Like, you know, his IQ and his waistband are the same, you know? Like, you know, you're saying, well, I made that commitment because I said, to love. To love. Uh, really, your vow was, uh, I give up myself. For them. I mean, husbands do the same thing. To love, to honor, to cherish. I give up myself for her. It's the same idea. Now again, I know many wives will say, I, I, I get this. But it's interesting, when you actually look at a lot of research on husbands and wives, um, more often than not, wives are more disappointed or discouraged in their relationship maritally than husbands. On, on, on the whole, almost. They, they, they would have a bigger list on what's the matter with the relationship. What's the matter with him? Like you give a guy a piece of paper. Hey, what's the matter with your relationship? I don't know. Just ain't good. <laughs> you know? Like, that's all he knows. What's the matter with her? I don't know. She just ain't happy. You know I mean? That's all they would have. You know? We're like a woman be like, can I go backside of this too? You know I mean? Like, like... And I, I don't mean that critically. I know it sounds critical, but you laugh because it's true. I mean, in other words, because women are invested differently in it. So there is this kind of sense of maybe, yeah, I'm, I'm not as, as happy in things. Also, wives are more likely to instigate arguments than men. Now, part of the problem is because men don't communicate well. So he's just like... So she eventually says, what's your problem, right? You're like, Nothing, right? And that's as far as he wants to go. But, but that, and then uh, also, oddly enough, uh, women are usually the last to apologize. And, and men are quicker to apologize on average. In fact, even if you look at divorce rates, uh, women 
pursue divorce 70 to 75% of the time in marriages today. And if you're a college-educated woman, 90% of divorces among college-educated women are, are driven by the wife. Because there's a discontent. There's, and, and matter of fact, even of that, 50% or actually just north of 50%, the reason for the divorce is neglect. It's not abuse. It isn't infidelity. It's just neglect. And they, they showed a listing of things that wives would say. He's just not there for me. There isn't the romance. He doesn't make the investment. He doesn't communicate. These kinds of things. Now, I'm not saying that's easy or fun. It's not, I'm not saying that I, I, I'm not empathetic to that at all. That's, that's not my point. My point is, what we did is we stood there in a white dress and a tux and a person that said, you promise to love for better or for worse. Well, I didn't know worse would mean he didn't communicate. Well, I I didn't know worse would mean that we just sort of lived opposite lives in the house. I didn't know worse would be that we would drift. And so we're brought back to what does Christ call wives to, to to love their husbands. Right? And, And I know that's hard, and I know that's a challenge. But it's the calling. In fact, it's been interesting for me, probably for the last 10 years, I think even pastorally, um, that the majority of um, infidelity or abandonment issues that I've dealt with maritally have been wives cheating on husbands or leaving husbands and their kids. It's really weird. I mean, I'm not saying that's polling data. I'm saying that's just been my last 10 years comparative to men. Right now, I'm not saying that's you. Not saying, and I'm not trying to cast this giant blanket. But I do think that there is value in saying when Paul says, "Wives, love your husbands," that that he means something sacrificial, not just romantic, but sacrificial. And I'm not again saying that's easy or pleasant to be in. But it's how you love. Just as I said to husbands last week, husbands, you want to love your wives. You die for them. You give yourself for them. You lay out completely for them. You sacrifice. You gut. You give everything for their good. Again, this is the mutual submission of Ephesians 5.21. So, wives, love your husbands. Another thing about loving husbands that I think is important in this passage in Titus chapter 2, it says, teach the young women to love their husbands and kids. Notice the order. Love your dude first. Love your dude first. Your kids are second. And and I know, most women go, I know, I got that, I got that. I, I know, my wife has always been so awesome about this. I mean, it's, and I appreciate it immensely. I say it publicly as a husband. I appreciate immensely that there has never been a single moment since we've had kids where I've ever felt that the kids were first. I've never felt that, ever. And I praise Jesus for my wife's understanding of that, where she goes, no, 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 I get it. They're going to leave. My daughter is going to be 16 this summer. She's already talking about leaving. Why? Why is she doing that? Why are you in such a hurry? You know? So, right? And she's going to leave. And eventually my daughter Emma's going to leave. And then my son Gray is going to leave. And it's going to be Ellen and I. And I don't want it to be. We're getting to know each other after 22 years or whatever. 
right? It shouldn't be that way. Wives, put your husbands first. I know the kids are demanding when they're younger, they're pulling, they're tugging, it's fatiguing. The husband walks in the door and the first inclination is, here you go, right? Understandable. But make sure you carve time for your guy because basically guys are wussies and they need love too. All right, so um, we are, man. I'll get into that maybe. I don't know. We'll see. It depends on if I want to get beat up by guys later. So um, love your husbands, then love your kids. Another thing about loving your dude, uh, love him as he needs to be loved. Love him as he needs to be loved. Uh, The way you need to be loved is certainly different than the way a guy needs to be loved. For guys, it's really simple. Three B's. That's it. Three B's. Build, bake, bed. All right? And and I know, right now, somebody's going to go, that's so sexist. No, it's simple is what it is. Um, You will remember the three B's. That's how simple a guy is. That's it. You just want to know how to love him. That's all. It's not complicated. We're not, we're not rockets, right? We're not. We're, we're like water balloons. That's it, you know. We're that simple. And that affirms love to us. So, love as he needs to be loved. And then also, love him by respecting him, as Paul would say. Respect him. Ephesians 5.33, it says, However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Um, here's something valuable for wives, I think, to know. Um, especially, like, on the communication front, you all are like communication ninjas. And we're like Elmer Fudd, all right? So, um, like, like if there's a, a discussion or a debate or a problem or whatever, you, you, I'll tell you now, you win. You win, all right? We're not going to win because you're just like hyper cross-referencing. Remember this and that and that. And remember this and then you build your case and you're like a lawyer. And it's like, man, I'm just dealing with Gloria Allred and I'm just trying to figure out how to clean the garage. I don't, you know, like, and you got it all. I'm just like, you know, um, you're going to win on the communication front. But what that does for us as guys who are just struggling to try to articulate a thoughtful sentence, um, usually a stupid one at that, um, is, is it makes us feel disrespected. And why? Because we're kind of babies, all right? And I, I am saying that. Guys, you know, we're, we're kind of babies. You know, we, we need respect. And when we start to feel like we're losing the battle, you know, we, we feel disrespected, which is why we get angry, right? You've probably read this before. Anger for a guy is like tears for a woman. That's what it is. Most guys don't just break down crying, right? <laughs> I'm sorry, honey. We don't, we don't do that. But we, you know, we get angry because we feel disrespected. And so that's where it's a big encouragement when Paul says do that. So respect him. Also, just respect him to your friends. I mean, as far as like, you know, if you're on the phone with one of your friends, talk about how great he is. If there's anything really cool, you want to stroke our ego, let us over here because we're babies. All right, so... Um, we're fragile, us men. So, uh, man, just, just do that. And, and it's a huge encouragement. This is where we're relatively simple as guys. And you will be a big encouragement to him. Now, you might look at all of this and say, um, yeah, Matt, that's, that's awesome. Um, but um, my guy is kind of selfish and self-interested and kind of a jerk and uh, a bit detached what should I do? 
Here's my best advice. I've given this before. Treat them like an enemy. Treat your jerk husband like an enemy. In fact, Jesus says, you've heard it was said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You don't have to treat them like a wife at that point. Just treat them like you're a Christian. Right? Love them as an enemy. In fact, a, a phrase I heard this week, and I loved it. It wasn't pertaining to marriage, but I loved it so much. Uh, I, it was good advice for me, because I'm, I'm not always good about some of these things. Uh, the, the basic idea was um, strive to make a difference, not simply to make a point. Strive to make a difference, not simply to make a point. Um, you know, you could, you could let them know where they fall down. And you'll make lots of good points. And points may be true, but it may not make a difference. And so to make a difference is kind of to come alongside, to come underneath, to help them be a better husband by lovingly making them aware. Right? That's making a difference. That's adding to him, not taking from him. So, love. The other thing, as I'm running out of time, is gospel-driven wives... They also submit, right? They submit. In Titus 2.5, Paul kind of wraps up part of that section by saying that the older women are to train the younger women to be submissive to their own husbands. Now, when we hear the word submit, the temptation is to interpret that word, not translate that word. Right? So we hear it, and then we go to these markers maybe we have in our own minds. Well, that means to subjugate. That means under radical rule of law, under thumb, oppression. Some people think about it that way. Even if you love UFC like I do, submission in ultimate fighting is to force them to quit. That's not the word that the Bible has in mind. Not even close. We shouldn't interpret it that way. We should understand it for what it is. It is to submit oneself, not to be under submission, but to submit oneself for the greater good. In fact, the New Testament does something pretty remarkable for its day. It's radically countercultural. I mean, radically. So like the the Greco-Roman world, right? Women didn't have a lot of respect, didn't have a lot of independent value or independent worth, and then the writers of the New Testament roll in, and they start saying things that are really, really crazy. Like Paul says in Galatians 3, men and women have equality in Christ. No one in the region would have thought that before that statement was made. No one. They would have said, no, no, no. There's the gods, there's your husband, there's you. And you follow the gods of your husband. That's it. And then Paul says, whoa, 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 there's neither male nor female in Christ. There is an essential equality. That's countercultural and pretty radical. He would go a step further and say, in fact, husbands, not only do you not have, quote, dominating control, you should die for her just like Christ. Husbands should sacrifice, not take. Countercultural. Paul will say to wives in 1 Corinthians 7, do you realize that your husband's body is not his but yours? Whoa. I thought wives were just the property of their husbands. Now Paul says, whoa, do you realize that also husbands are the property of their wives? That's, that's pretty radical. He'll say also in 1 Corinthians 7, wives sanctify their unbelieving husbands. They spiritually put things into them that they themselves cannot develop otherwise. That's countercultural. 
So, submission is not some of the negative things we place on it. It is the positive of saying, I submit myself. It's not servitude. I submit myself for the good of another. In other words, it's just fulfilling your vows. That's all it is. Fulfilling your vows. Your vows affirmed it. You pledged it. Husbands, your vows affirmed it. You pledged it. You do it. Ephesians 5, Paul kind of builds this out more. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. What I love about this is the phrase up at the beginning, um, as to the Lord. As to the Lord, I think for the Christian wife, the reality is this is less about your husband and it's more about Jesus. It's really more about Jesus as to the Lord. Because what I'm not up here saying is that your husband is a quality guy, great guy, perfect guy, fitting guy, greatest husband ever to walk the planet since me. Um, I'm not saying any of that. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is Jesus calls us as husbands and wives to our calling regardless of whether the other reciprocates, right? Because we said, I do. I promise to. And there was no caveat. There was no condition at the end of that pledge. There was no love, honor, and cherish provided that they do also in like kind. That's not even on your marriage certificate anywhere hidden in the bottom margin. It's not there. We said, we just, we just will. And so what you almost have to do is just have a very high uh, sense of how Jesus sees it. A very high sense to where you say, you know what, even if my husband doesn't notice my efforts, Jesus does. And even if my husband takes advantage of me, Jesus doesn't. He rewards. If your husband ignores you, well, Jesus adores you. If your husband neglects you, well, Jesus attends to you. I mean, there has to be that kind of confidence and that kind of faith and that kind of belief. Now, does that mean you don't hope for the best? If you say, I'm going to serve them, I'm going to submit, I'm going to love, I'm going to invest. Do you not in that hope for change? Certainly, if your husband's kind of a punk, you should hope for change. But you don't do it for change's sake. You do it for Christ's sake. And you hope for change. You pray for change. But you do it for Christ. And yeah, man, I, I think this is hard. It is. Because what it requires ultimately is faith. It's faith. In fact, in 1 Peter, it says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, again, not good husbands, if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. It says, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. My wife calls me Lord. It's a real blessing. Um, <laughs> nah, she doesn't call me Lord. All right. It says, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. What I love about this is a couple things. First office is all right. Wives submit to husbands who maybe don't obey the word. You go, well, that's scary. I don't know where he's going to go and what he's going to do and how he's going to act. I know. That's where you have to trust. You have to trust. 
And then he uses Sarah as the example. And Sarah didn't simply submit. She went two steps further. She obeyed and called him Lord. That's a lot. That's huge. And you want to know what the scenario was where she obeys, calls him Lord, and submits? It's when Moses, or it's when Abraham, rather, says, you know what? Let's say you're my sister and lie to Pharaoh. He didn't obey the word. And instead of Sarah going, oh, that's lie, that's sin, that's bad. She took this extra step to trust the Lord. Right? That's it. Where you pray, all right, Jesus, I need your strength. Help me to, 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 to trust you, even though he's being ridiculous. And then as a wife, the best thing you can do is duck and let God hit him. Right? I mean, honestly, duck and let God beat the stupid out of your guy. Because God will do a far better job. In other words, make a difference instead of just making a point. Right? God will be faithful if you trust him. Again, look at the, the text there. I love that. If you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. I mean, again, for, for Sarah and the situation with Abraham, very frightening. There's going to be things that you go, this is frightening. This freaks me out. What's going to happen to our family? Now, am I saying a wife doesn't ever come to a husband and say, hey, I'm concerned. Hey, I'm nervous. Hey, I'm worried. Hey, help me out. Hey, I think this should be different. No, that doesn't mean that. I think you should communicate. You should talk. You should bring insight and everything else. But you do it with that goal that says, I want to make a difference, not just make a point. Same for husbands. Anytime you need to coach your wife or family through something, don't make your points. Make a difference. It's a tone. It's a spirit. It's an attitude. And when a wife lives like this, Titus 2.5, the word of God is not reviled. Because it shows the gospel transforms all of us. From selfish to selfless. From takers to givers. Husbands and wives alike. And so wives, when your husband is forgetful, love like Jesus. When your husband recalls, love like Jesus. When your husband is insensitive, love like Jesus. When your husband is caring, love like Jesus. When your husband is clueless, love like Jesus. When your husband is clued in, love like Jesus. When your husband gives you an appliance for Valentine's Day, man, love like Jesus. When your husband writes you a poem, love like Jesus. When your husband is ignoring, love like Jesus. When he's listening, love like Jesus. When he's being a baby, love like Jesus. When he's being a man, love like Jesus. When he's being sinful, love like Jesus. When he's being godly, love like Jesus. Because that's how Jesus loves you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for the reminder of what your design for husbands and wives is to be, which really isn't about one sub subjecting the other to authority or force, but mutual submission, mutual sacrifice, mutual service, all for your glory. We love you, praise you, and thank you in your name. Amen.